0: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. We've got a lot to get into this week, so let's get started.
1: Lord,
0: I will live Hundreds gathered in Memphis to remember 29-year-old Tyree Nichols on Wednesday. Vice President Kamala Harris attended his funeral service, and Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy.
2: In the city that Dr. King lost his life, Not far away from that balcony, you beat a brother to death. There's nothing more insulting and offensive to those of us that fight to open doors, that you walk through those doors and act like the folks we had to fight for to get you through them doors.
0: Standing among the mourners were others whose lives have been irrevocably changed by police violence, including Breonna Taylor's mother and George Floyd's brother. The mother of 29-year-old Jalen Randall sang the gospel song, Lord, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Randall was shot and killed by a Houston police officer last year. We'll have the latest on the investigation into Nichols' murder and on the rest of the week's biggest news today on The Roundup. Joining us, Wendy Benjaminson. She's Bloomberg's deputy managing editor. Wendy, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having
0: me. Also with us, Arthur Delaney. He's a senior reporter for HuffPost. Artie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Steve Clemens is an editor-at-large at Semaphore. Steve, it's great to have you with us. Great
4: to see you again, Jen.
0: So let's start with the latest in Memphis. This week, two more police officers were relieved of duty in connection with the beating death of Tyree Nichols. Three AMTs were also fired for their response to the incident. Steve, what do we know about the investigation so far?
4: Well, we know it's expanding. We've been told that there are about 20 hours of video that the public has not yet seen. We've seen some EMS, some some emergency response staff also let go after this uh, terrible tragedy. And the investigation continues and widens. But I think that the broader side of this is, you know, given the, the funeral, given the attention to this, what does it mean for uh, policing in general, we've been around this before with George Floyd's murder, Ahmaud Harbrey's murder, other people where you see a complicity or you suspect the complicity between uh, government for police officers who are tasked with enforcing public safety um, and and holding them accountable, and that process becomes political and complicated, and that and that's why we may see many many protests. Uh, coming up. And I think Atlanta and other places are bracing for that.
0: We'll touch on Atlanta in a moment, but one consequence we probably won't see is any legislation from Congress. GOP Representative Jim Jordan threw cold water on hopes of federal police reform during an MSNBC appearance on Sunday.
3: Well, I don't know that there's any law that can stop that evil that we saw that is just, I mean, just difficult to watch. Um, What strikes me is just the lack of respect for human life. Um, so I don't know that any law, any training, any reform is going to change. You know, they, 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 this man was handcuffed. They continued to beat him.
0: We got this message from Ryan who writes, Band-Aid legislation like banning chokeholds or no-knock warrants won't solve anything other than tie police's hands in many situations. The current proposed legislation isn't nearly enough, and therefore it's not a huge loss if the GOP derails it on this occasion. Artie, what is, well... What was being considered in Congress around police reform?
5: Abandoning chokeholds was one small part of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that lawmakers were working on in 2021 and uh, ultimately reached an impasse. But that was not it at all. I, I talked to Jim Jordan on Monday. And he he that 's his line, he said the same thing. we you know why even make laws? we can't, our laws are powerless, which is a strange thing for a legislator to say, but he also mentioned you know if, if even if we had banned chokeholds, the officers who killed Tyree Nichols weren 't using a chokehold that wasn't that wasn 't it it was uh, it, it It reformed the uh, doctrine of qualified immunity, which is uh something our courts have come up with that shields police officers and other government officials from uh, uh, monetary damages if they're if they're sued, and uh, Republicans wouldn't wouldn't touch that. That was the holdup with that bill, and that was uh, important for Democrats. And that remains the likely sticking point. Uh, there there is, however, interest from both Republicans and Democrats to do something. So I don't I don't I wouldn't say that there's no chance of legislation. I think the uh, swiftness with which this, the uh, the officers who killed Nichols have been charged with murder, it, it reflects a, a change in a, a broader recognition that this is unacceptable. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's not likely that Congress will do something, but not impossible.
0: Well, Wendy, the five officers charged in Nichols' death all belong to one tactical unit, the Scorpion unit, and that unit was dissolved on Sunday. What do we know about it?
3: Well, we know that it was an effort, original effort to try to, uh, you know, have more cops on the street, a bigger police presence that would discourage street crime. In all parts, it's in all parts of, of Memphis. The trouble is that you create this unit, you give it this cool name, you get, you know, these cops on the street with feeling that they have extra power, and you see what happened in that video the other day. they 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 feel completely empowered to treat people, however they see fit. and there's this sort of gang mentality that the cops have, um, you know, as we also saw in the video, where they they all joined in to 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 beat Nichols to death. Um, uh, so now the unit has been disbanded. Um, and they will try to come up with other ways of policing. I've also seen some reporting. I think it was in the Intercept this morning that um, the Memphis, some Memphis police officers, including the chief, have been trained um, by the Israeli police. You know, which who have a different security s- situation on the ground than than we do in the United States, right or wrong. And they, um, you know, if they're getting training from the Israelis who are sort of in a war footing all the time, that may not translate
0: well to American streets. And you mentioned Memphis Police Chief Sarah Lynn Davis. Steve, how, how far up the ranks do you think accountability will go in this case?
4: Oh, that's such an interesting and troubling question because we've all been watching incidents similar to this one in the past and asking, will this incident change uh, policing training standards? You know, I had long interviews in the past with Val Demings, the former uh, uh, head of the Orlando Police Department, who was, of course, served in the House and then ran unsuccessfully the Senate on basically, you know, benchline, you know, training performance, whether it was de-escalation techniques or other kinds of things. But also looking at those officers that have come up through the ranks and system, and whether or not they have been, whether they look at this as a serious avocation and how they change the orientation and norms of their own officers. And I think... You know, I'll, t- I'll tell you something Chris Christie told me. You know, uh, of course, the former governor of New Jersey you know, and a wannabe presidential candidate. He said, Look, in, in Camden, New Jersey, where you had an incredible police uh, brutality uh, and violence problem, we had to get rid of everyone, he said, quote unquote. We had to get rid of everyone and start from scratch and rebuild it. I don't know if the U.S. Police system is that bad, but I know that's the kind of dynamic that police unions don't want to see. Uh, Representative Jim Jordan, whom Artie just uh, interviewed, doesn't want that, and so you end up with these, you know, p- while well, we see a murder essentially on the streets by 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 police. the the kind of how we rebuild it. Do we do something strategic and big or do we tinker at the edges? And right now the politics are tinkering at the edges.
0: Well, let's shift to Atlanta. After months of protests, plans to build a sprawling police training facility in the middle of a forest will move forward with some slight changes. Artie, tell us about Cop City. What is it?
5: It's a proposed training facility for uh, police in Atlanta that uh, has been in the works for a while, but it's it's bringing in a lot of different uh, political elements because there's environmental opposition to the choice, there's opposition from neighbors, and there's also just the the broader opposition to the I- idea that we will pour money into a police department that will you know fund the police basically. So it's all that coming together, and you've got people uh, trees sitting in order to prevent the uh, you know the the, the clearing of forests in order to build it, and it's uh, been the site of huge uh, protests and and police arresting people and charging them with uh, uh, crimes related to terrorism. So so serious charges and uh, another flashpoint in the broader debate over police reform.
0: Well, on Tuesday, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens promised demonstrators he'd reach a compromise with developers. Wendy, what was in that deal and are protesters buying it?
3: I don't think the protesters are buying it. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not all that familiar with what was in his, his deal. But um, so hopefully one of my colleagues can help me out there, but the protesters are clearly not buying it. And the shooting of this protester is, is certainly not helping. The interesting thing is that then Atlanta mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who now works as a community liaison at the, at the white house uh, you know, she was all for this center to, to bring sort of 21st century, Public safety training to the Atlanta police force, and now that
0: seems to be um, certainly in jeopardy. Well, we'll pick up our conversation there. One of you tweets this a few ideas for police reform, statewide licensure, requiring a bachelor's degree, and settlements that come from pension funds in the police union, not taxpayers. More of the stories we're following closely in a moment, but first, you might be wondering about the music playing. Rage Against the Machine is among the 14 nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced this week. Also on the list are Cindy Lauper, a tribe called Quest, and Sheryl Crow. It's quite a diverse lineup, but Rage Against the Machine is our engineer Mike Kidd's favorite and, well, he <laughs> picks our break music. Back with more in a moment. Come on! let's pick up with our conversation about Cop City in Atlanta. Uh, The mayor there, Mayor Andre Dickens, uh, promised demonstrators he would reach a a compromise with developers. And among the details in the mayor's deal, it includes adding a 100-foot tree buffer, adding sidewalks, and moving the firing range further away from the residential area. Steve, where would you place Cop City in in the broader discussion about policing and police reform in the country right now.
4: Well, I think Mayor Dickens is trying to look at the local community, the city, the city's needs and, you know, deal with developers, what what Artie just talked about, you know, some of the environmental issues, but the times we're in, the toxicity about policing what we've seen in Memphis is not allowing the micro orientation and the deals that the mayor is doing because people are angry at what the police have done, the failure to get reforms. And the irony of this is so-called cop city is supposed to be a place to bring in 21st century training technique and set a very different kind of baseline in the norms, habits, and practices of policing. And so it was supposed to be an investment in improving the lot, but it's become a target of this deep national anger right now, um, particularly felt in communities of color, but honestly, anyone that watches that video across any racial lines would be outraged by what's going on. So it's the biggest ninety million dollar, eighty-five acre target uh, for this moment, and and those smaller deals that DeKalb County and the mayor want to make are are just kind of hitting the mark, not hitting the mark with what uh, frustrations you know various Americans have right now about policing outcomes and the mayor of, you know, Tyre Nichols.
0: Mm. We got that listener tweet, who, and they mentioned um, requiring bachelor's degrees, requiring state licensure, settlement money coming from police pensions mm. and unions instead of from taxpayers. we when we talk about some of that potential congressional action, is any of that on the table? It's more talk about setting
5: national standards, hopefully through a grant program that rewards de- departments for having uh, better training. This is the Republican idea that Senator Tim Scott uh, from South Carolina has talked about. Democrats are still it's 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 still the George Floyd in policing act as their baseline with the idea of reforming qualified immunity. In other words, making it so that officers feel more accountable for what their actions because if they do something wrong. They would have to pay. Right now, that's not what happens. They're shielded from lawsuits. And even if one does break through, they themselves won't be individually shelling
4: out. I just want to give a quick shout out to Representative Maxwell Frost, who in response to Jim Jordan said, you know, what if we had been at the top of the civil rights protest in America? And people just says, oh, we just saw evil on the streets. There's no laws that matter. There's nothing that can be done to reframe the debate. And I thought for a young person, a Gen Z uh, representative, it was a particularly apt Comment to come in and sort of look at what are our collective social contract responsibilities in these times, and I, you know, just wanted to note that that was an interesting point of debate for uh, one of the youngest members in the House of Representatives. So.
0: Well, let's move on to some business stories, but in Texas first, business slowed to a halt this week. Around 400,000 homes and businesses lost power for days as an ice storm pummeled the state. Cold temperatures and freezing rain blanketed Texas and parts of Kentucky this week. At least nine people died. Now the. Day Dangerously cold weather is easing up down south, but it's landing in the northeast. The National Weather Service says wind chills could get as low as 45 degrees below zero throughout much of New England and down to minus 60 in Maine. It warned of a, quote, epic generational Arctic outbreak. Well, the jobs numbers are out, and employers added a whopping 517,000 jobs last month. That's way more than the government was expecting, and it's nearly double the number of jobs created in December. Wendy, what, if anything, does this indicate about the direction of the economy? Well, it's great news for uh, for politically,
3: for the White House and for Democrats, this is the lowest unemployment number in fifty three years and a record low for black Americans. So this is very, very good news in terms of getting the economy moving again, getting people to work, getting people to buy things, getting people to you know participate again in in life to the fullest. The trouble is, it's not great for easing inflationary pressures because people have money to spend. And if they have money to spend, prices tend to be pushed upwards. So the Fed this week raised interest rates again, a quarter of a point, quarter of a percentage point, excuse me, to four and three quarters percent. That's after a half point rise in December and four, three three quarters of a point raises before that. And that's higher Um, than it's been in
0: more than a decade.
3: Exactly right, Jen. And they are saying that there could be more before they settle down, even as inflationary prices begin to ease. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it's always good when it's always good for an economy and growth when people are working.
0: Well, Artie, I know you you cover politics and the economy for HuffPost. I'd love your take on these numbers. The numbers are off the wall. It-
5: A half a million jobs in a month is insane. And we saw that during the pandemic recovery, but that was sort of normal because so many people had become unemployed so rapidly. It's a big surprise. Nobody was expecting it for uh, January. And it shows that so far, the labor market has been strong enough to withstand what the Fed has been throwing at it. The Fed is trying to hurt the economy so that people have less money, so that prices go down. And prices are coming down. So you could look at the situation and say, this is wonderful. We are slowing inflation without harming the labor market. Most economists did not really think that was possible because that wasn't the experience in past decades. However, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said this week – he was he was sort of not in a good mood about, about what's going on. He was saying we got to – we got to keep raising rates. Uh, he, without saying this because he knows it sounds bad, he wants unemployment to go up. He wants people to have less money, to have smaller raises, and the Fed is going to continue raising rates in order to try to make that happen. Now, theoretically, they could do this without too much unemployment. That's what he's hoping. But it's the strong jobs report like this could be concerning, like Wendy said, because it will encourage them to raise rates potentially more rapidly than they otherwise plan to.
0: So it's really interesting. When I hear you say prices are coming down, I, I sort of juxtapose that with what I'm hearing from people. And it seems every other social media post I hear, every other conversation I hear, it's somebody talking about how much a, a dozen eggs are right now in the grocery store. They're like, how are eggs $8 a dozen or $9 a dozen or the price of a gallon of milk? So where do we see prices coming down? Is it across the board?
5: Yes, there there has been uh, less inflationary pressure in prices across the board in all kinds of metrics that the Fed has been looking at. That doesn't mean inflation is gone. Prices are still much higher than they were a year ago. We've had historically high inflation, and we're not out of the woods by any means. It's just that they, they want to look ahead to to the direction of inflation, and we, it's it's been slowing down. And that's good. And that's important because the effect of their interest rate hikes is commonly thought to take effect to be felt by the economy with a lag of a year or even two years. So they don't want to keep raising rates if things are getting better. And then find out they've strangled the economy into a terrible recession. They they want to figure out how to stop before they get there. And that's a serious concern. You know, they could they they in the past have caused Double digit unemployment nationally. So it's something to worry about.
0: I mean, Steve, what are we seeing in terms of consumer spending? There are certain things you, you got to buy. You got to buy food. And then you have things like, you know, maybe purchasing a new car, purchasing a home, uh, going on vacation. What are we seeing there?
4: We're seeing, as already said, some back off in consumer spending. Some people look, you know, beginning to save again as opposed to um, the very high levels of cons- consumption we've been seeing. All that said, though, um, it is it is a remarkable thing when you kind of look at uh, the larger behaviors and how you're going to sort of dial up or down dial down the economy, which the Fed is you know worried about. We're talking about interest rates, but there are other ways in which to create inflation uh, uh, relief, if you will. One is our largest trading partner is China. We have a lot of complications with China, but our number one trading partner is not Canada, it's China. And we have lots of sanctions on China. We also have border issues and immigration issues. The way in the past America always succeeded versus many other uh, economies in, in managing this is they put pressure on uh, labor and wage rates. And if you saw a diminishment of those sanctions, if you saw uh, a more progressive, if you will, or more liberal uh, immigration policy, you would see inflation fall at a dramatic rate. So you're making a social choice with some of the issues that are going on uh, and coming in. But I think consumers right now, still, we're seeing it in the numbers feel robust. And they're... the one thing I'm really interested in is where did a lot of workers disappear to? Mm-hmm. I mean, we are. We are really, really in very tight employment right now. And and as Artie said, the numbers are off off the, the, the roof, but there's still a lot of people as a result of COVID that decided to opt out of employment. So part of those numbers of the underemployed, partially employed, the, the people that have taken themselves out there are still lurking out there and haven't been enticed to come back yet uh, into the labor market. And I think we should be asking ourselves why, what's broken there.
0: Well, let's move on to international trade. Uh, the US is cracking down on American companies. And he's exporting goods to the Chinese tech company Huawei. Wendy, what restrictions is the Biden administration putting in place?
3: Um, They are considering some very um, tight restrictions. And if I can just do a shout out, this story was broken first by our Jenny Leonard and Ian King. So um, I'm very proud of them for breaking this story. They want to cut off, the Biden administration, I should say, wants to cut off Huawei technologies from all of its American suppliers, including chips from Intel, other um, things that go into telecommunications uh, and equipment from Qualcomm, Inc., two American companies in particular. Um, in order to, you know, cripple Huawei a little further. They've been, a lot of U.S. firms have not been able to sell to Huawei for about four years. This is actually a policy that Donald Trump started and Joe Biden is continuing um, because they just don't trust the Chinese to, um, uh, you know, not to use these for military purposes. And things like that. But it is going to um, now on top of the balloon over Montana um, and all of that, it really shows that there may be even more measures coming soon to isolate uh, China's economy. And as I think it was Steve saying, um,
0: you know, try to try to fix inflation that way, too. In Texas, Republican Congressman Michael McCall warned of a future military conflict between the U.S. and China on Fox News last Sunday.
5: China is looking at uni- reunification of Taiwan, right? That's how they call it. We have to be prepared for this. Um, and it could happen, I think, as long as Biden is in office, <clears throat> projecting weakness, as he did with Afghanistan that led to Putin invading uh, in Ukraine, uh, that the odds are very high we could see a conflict uh, with China and Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific
0: this goes back to my father's war, World War II. McCall is chairman of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Artie, what does Biden's trade policy mean for U.S. and China relations? Well, I,
5: it's it's partly trade policy. It's partly reflects domestic politics. An, an illustration of this came yesterday when the House passed a resolution um, with a lot of Democrats in support, but it was a Republican uh, a resolution just condemning the horrors of socialism. And House Speaker. Kevin McCarthy came out afterwards and denounced the 100 Democrats who voted against it. So Joe Biden doesn't want to look like he's soft on China. So that is inspiring a more restrictive uh, approach to trade with China and also a a probably more bellicose approach to the the situation in Taiwan.
0: Well, let's turn now to politics. As 2024 gets closer, we're learning more about who may or may not be eyeing a seat in the Oval Office. The latest of those people may be Republican Nikki Haley. South Carolina newspaper The Post and Courier reported this week Haley will announce her presidential run February 15th. Haley served as governor in South Carolina from 2011 to 2017. She was also the former U.N. ambassador under the Trump administration. So now Trump and Haley may be at odds for the GOP presidential nomination. Steve, what do we know about Haley's potential campaign?
4: Well, she's talking to a lot of people about running and indicated that she probably will. And we're getting all the rumors you are that that she's going to announce around that time. And you're beginning to see um, folks um, previously working for President Trump's administration, you know, Mike Pompeo, uh, of course, Mike Pence and others, um, all coming out and and laying out the groundwork. And, And the reason we know this is they go out and speak to those people who know how to run elections, how to raise money, how to organize a campaign. Uh, And we know that the intent here is serious. We also know that Donald Trump is really ticked off at them. Uh, And Semaphore had a great piece, uh, in fact, today with uh, the president grousing about how disloyal uh, this is, calling Nikki Haley overly ambitious. Um, Mike Pompeo calling Nikki Haley, you know, basically a a nothing. Um, And so you're beginning to see this square off, even though mathematically Donald Trump is interestingly helped – by having lots of people in the field, so the more Nikki Haley types that get in, the better overall that that uh, the conditions for Donald Trump running in a primary process. But you know he's irritated. She seems to be undeterred, and and she's talking to people about and, and making the case of why she, uh, her background, her governorship, her executive skills, her international exposure, her China hawkishness, all of that, and also being a person of color in the Republican Party. Um, It's time for her.
0: Well, former President Trump formally announced his 2024 campaign last November. But this week, a controversy from his initial campaign in 2016 was back in the headlines. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is gathering evidence that might tie Trump to the hush money infamously given to adult film star Stormy Daniels by then-Trump attorney Michael Cohen. Real quickly, Artie, what do we know about this new evidence?
5: Uh, well, I, Trump himself basically confirmed that he did this. He made a statement this week and said, "I was just following my lawyer's advice." There's never been much doubt that the Trump campaign paid off Stormy Daniels. It's it's just a question of whether the prosecutor can uh, wring a criminal charge out of it. Uh, there's complicated legal questions that I'm not expert on, but the ultimate impact of it will obviously be nothing. If it's if it's short of uh, criminal charges, because nobody in the Republican primary electorate seems to care that he had this relationship with a former porn
0: star. And so could these charges or even the, the specter of these charges affect his 2024 campaign?
5: It's possible. It just helps him. He loves saying he's being witch hunted and it's just another witch hunt. So I'm loath to suggest he could be in actual trouble. Though maybe he could. I don't know.
0: Well, more from our guests and from you as the roundup continues in a moment. But let's take a moment to remember Barrett Strong. Strong helped shape the sound of Motown. He sang the label's first major hit, Money, That's What I Want, in 1959. He then went on to co-write classic songs like Papa Was a Rolling Stone, Just My Imagination, and I Heard It Through the Grapevine, first recorded by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Paying tribute, Motown founder Barry Gordy said those hits were, quote, revolutionary in sound and captured the spirit of the time. Barrett Strong was 81. Let's get back to the conversation. Former President Trump took aim at Ron DeSantis again Wednesday, calling the Florida governor a, quote, rhino globalist in a truth social post. DeSantis hasn't officially announced his 2024 presidential run, but he's widely expected to jump into the race. Wendy, what else did the former president say about DeSantis?
3: Well, the former president has also recently said that um, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, has... um, begged him, begged Trump to endorse him for his re-election in 2018. Uh, tears were coming down from his eyes, said Trump, as he begged him to, you know, give him what he needed to win. DeSantis has been a little bit flip about this. Earlier this week, he's just starting to respond to Trump. He's been ignoring him, but this week he's beginning to respond. And his answer when asked about these comments were, hey, I got reelected, which is actually, you know, not a bad comeback. Um, Donald Trump is clearly nervous more than anything about Ron DeSantis. You've mentioned how he's angry at uh, Nikki Haley and he's angry at Mike Pompeo for daring to uh, having worked for him and then in Trump's mind, showing disloyalty by running for president themselves. But Ron DeSantis is considered an actual threat to Donald Trump's renomination um, for the presidency in 2024, uh, he is only 44 years old. He's um, the Florida economy is doing well. He's popular down there. Uh, he is extremely conservative, but he's been an executive of a state. He seems to know how to pull the levers of government, and so. Um, Donald Trump is
0: scared of Ron DeSantis and showing it. Artie, what does this tell you about the dynamics within the GOP right now?
5: I believe the dynamics are the same as they were in the 2016 primary. I don't think Ron DeSantis or anyone else has a plausible path toward uh, defeating Donald Trump in the primary. Uh, just consider what will Donald Trump concede that he lost an election? No. He'll burn the whole thing down. Uh, so everyone who, everyone who ran against him wound up humiliated. And uh, I do think Brian DeSantis is, is trying to position himself for a real run. I question whether that's the same for some of the other people putting their names out there like Nikki Haley. Does she, does she want to go up against Trump or does she want to make a name for herself? Hmm. Does she want a potential position uh, on, on, a, on a Trump ticket? Does she want to be a VP? I, I don't know. Uh, but so long as Trump is out there – and uh, you know, as angry as ever, and proven unwilling to concede defeat, uh, to the extent that he will incite a riot and, uh, and attack people who say he lost, I, there's just no way. For somebody to beat him,
0: Steve, I'd love your thoughts too. Well, I
4: may disagree a little bit with with Artie because I I I think Donald Trump is out there and hits lots of landmines and 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 typically shows no effect that they did anything to him. Uh, and and but at some point you sort of look at it and we've seen um, echoes of a kind of diminishing influence that Donald Trump has over his party. And when you talk to those folks with money, you talk to the folks that are bankrolling a lot of this, you talk to evangelicals who have been reticent about signing back up with Donald Trump, it does look like there's a potential pathway for someone to come in as the alternative to Donald Trump. And a lot of people at this moment see Ron DeSantis as a very compelling character for the reasons you outlined. And one of the most important reasons is Republicans want to win. And when they look at the 2022 race, the place where, you know, the red, tide if not a red wave happened was in Florida and conservatives did extremely well uh, in Florida and did not do well in other places in the country and that is in part um, credit given to Ron DeSantis. So I, I, I think that n- numerically when you have a lot of people running and because of Donald Trump's popularity with the base, Artie may be right. But I do think you sort of see um, um, a kind of fading in a way that wasn't expected of Donald Trump's control over the party apparatus. And I think that's something we should kind of keep an open aperture as to what might happen. And DeSantis may, in fact fill that place and, and, and have an opportunity to challenge Trump in a credible
0: way. Winnie, you want to chime in
3: here too? I think Ron DeSantis has a very, very, very good chance of winning this nomination. Oh!
0: <laughs> Sorry, Artie. Sorry, Artie. You're, you're outvoted. Well, DeSantis has also caused a stir nationwide after threatening to ban a pilot version of an AP African-American studies course. The College Board, which oversees AP courses, released a revised version of the curriculum Wednesday with changes that largely address the governor's complaint. We had a conversation about this on Wednesday, and you can find that show at the1a.org. Steve, what does the revised curriculum look like compared to the initial version?
4: Well, the revised curriculum for the, the primary curriculum knocks out a lot of key African-American writers. My former colleague at The Atlantic, ta Coates, who won the National Book Award for you know Between the World and Me, I'm an extraordinary, who wrote also an amazing Atlantic story on reparations and you know sort of set the historical context uh, in very compelling ways. So the, a set of authors around that have been essentially transported out of the final draft of what AP did to a uh, corollary. I've listened to uh, the College Board's responses saying they have not removed those reporters; that they are available uh, for the AP African Studies component, which will be made available free and to the public, etc. But there's been a real, real, you know, debate about what is the primary drive, and and many of those writers around reparations, around critical race theory, around. Um, America's experience uh, with LGBT, LGBTQ issues and other civil rights issues has been softened and a lot of those voices taken out of the final, the final draft. So. Well,
0: Teresa Reed was a part of the College Board Committee that developed the course. And earlier on Morning Edition, she was asked if the College Board had bowed to political pressure. Absolutely not. DeSantis was was not a factor at all in the framework.
1: Uh, But there again, if the college board wanted to appease DeSantis, it didn't do a very good job because all of those uh, supposedly controversial
0: topics and authors will appear as secondary sources on AP Classroom. And this is what you were alluding to, Steve. There's the platform AP Classroom she mentioned, which is quote separate and different from the framework itself. So, Artie, when you hear these changes and you hear the distinction being made between what's in the official framework and what's being offered as supplementary material, it's secondary,
4: secondary, sources, secondary,
0: sources. secondary sources, what what does it say to you about the fact that if states take this course, if they use it? Depending upon where you live in the country, you're going to have a very different experience of what African American history is.
5: Yeah, it's appalling. Ron DeSantis pushed them around. The idea that it's a secondary source uh, is great, but that's you know here's a list of books you might read secondarily. That doesn't sound like it's actually part of the course. So I, I don't. I'm not, uh, I am not. I don't think that's really what happened.
0: I mean, Wendy, put this in, in the larger context of where we are in the country right now as you see it. There have been so many debates and struggles over what gets taught in the classroom, so many discussion about discussions about so-called parental rights. If you're a parent in Florida and you want your child to have access to the course, maybe closer to its version in, in the pilot uh, version of the AP, uh, African American Histories course, what does it say to you as a parent in Florida that you don't have access to that anymore for your child?
3: right. it would if if I wanted that, it would be extremely frustrating. I will say on the political side of things first, just very quickly, what whether or not they acceded to Ron DeSantis or not the college board, Ron DeSantis can show this as a political victory. He got, he will say in his ads, the college board to um, you know, to to uh, restrict the course further all over the country. And in Virginia where another possible 2024 presidential candidate, Glenn Youngkin is running, there are many, many crackdowns on on what teachers can teach. They're sending out permission slips in the Arlington schools now for, um, parents to, for the kids to be able to view Greek statues like the Venus de Milo or Dave Michelangelo's David or things like that. And, and because the the teachers are so scared of what the conservatives, governments will do they may be overreaching and, and restricting education even further, um, so it's it can be very very frustrating for some of those parents.
0: Steve, where do you think this goes from here? I think it
4: is an ongoing battle. I mean what we 're seeing is that ultimately history is a negotiation. how we think of our identity, ourselves, our past becomes a battle that 's political between different groups, and we see in American history through decades of at least my experience you know uh important leaders and moments in history that were neglected and i think that aligned with communities that felt demeaned left behind and not part of the american story and so to reconcile that change the so-called it's seen as a zero sum game unfortunately with winners and losers as opposed to one where an aperture is opened to realize that many other people—I've seen this in Japan with uh, historical memory challenges in Japanese educational textbooks about you know Japanese liability and, and behavior during World War II. You see uh, the Tulsa race riots uh, that I never knew about growing up, even though my family's from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, 39 miles north of Tulsa. And so when you kind of look at the fact that there are big swaths of American history— Someone like me, I'm not known, you know, read up on everything, but, but you sort of see that. I think it's, it's, it's practically criminal that in, in my book that we are not creating templates of greater inquiry. Um, I loved the uh, uh, commentary from your guest this morning on Morning Edition because she talked about tre- teaching critical thinking, teaching about arguments, how to build a case, how to consider the alternative in disagreements with one's view. And I think when you try to engage in thought control with the kinds of things, in my view, my personal view in Florida – um, I think it leads in very bad directions and it assures the battle will continue. So this will continue.
0: Well, on Wednesday, President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy met to discuss ways to avoid defaulting on the national debt by raising the ceiling. According to McCarthy, the meeting went pretty well. I think our first meeting was a good meeting. I don't I don't want to put it in any false perspectives. We, we both have different perspectives on this. But I um... I thought this was a good meeting. We promised we would continue the conversation. We'll see if we can get there. I think at the end of the day, we can find common ground. Artie, what ultimately came out of this talk between Biden and McCarthy? Oh, nothing. <laughs> but uh,
5: it, it, what he said, it's, this is a, a dance between the two of them to seem more reasonable. And they've both conceded a little bit. Uh, Kevin McCarthy had demanded that Joe Biden in, invite him over. And Joe Biden ac- acceded to that demand. However, for weeks, Joe Biden had been beating up Republicans for suggesting that they would try for cuts to Social Security and Medicare as part of this process. Uh, Kevin McCarthy had left that door open himself many times. In the past two weeks, he started saying, we're going to put those programs off the table. And he's adopted this tone of, we must work together and make a deal so they've they've both uh, conceded a little bit, but ultimately nothing is going on. There's no paper going back and forth. There's no consensus among Republicans for what things they actually want to cut, even though they've been talking about doing cuts for months. So the rubber has not yet really begun to hit the road on this negotiation.
0: And just remind us the urgency around coming to some agreement.
5: So there's a, a statutory limit on how much money the federal government can borrow in order to pay for its basic expenses. And these are bills that Congress has racked up over decades. The limit will, we've already hit the limit, and the Treasury Department's moving money around so that there's no bond default or missed Social Security payment. And they will only be able to do that for a couple months. And if they blow that deadline, there could be a financial crisis and a recession. You could have millions of Social Security recipients not get paid until it's resolved, so it it is potentially maximally catastrophic, and Republicans are using this as their hostage to force spending cuts that they refuse to name uh, but have got to come up with and uh even though so so Joe Biden on the one hand is saying, we must not negotiate over this it's too ridiculous. he's also playing this game with Kevin McCarthy and signaling that he will would be willing to do. A little bit of deficit reduction, if not, uh, you know, something drastic like a balanced budget in a short time.
0: Well, we have just a little bit of time left here. And I want to give you each a chance to briefly give a sentence or two on a story you're watching in the weeks ahead. Wendy, go ahead.
3: Well, I um, I know it's international, but I am really watching this this balloon that Republicans are really calling for Biden uh, to order it shot down, um, and it really could be a new a new measure of U.S. China relations. Arthur,
5: I'm following an intra Republican debate over the Capitol riot of January 6th uh, with Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump saying Ashley Babbitt, the writer, was murdered in and Kevin McCarthy not being willing to go there.
4: And
0: what about you, Steve?
4: Next week on Tuesday, the Europe, uh, the the French and German finance ministers are coming to the Biden administration to complain about the Inflation Reduction Act as protectionist. And Tuesday morning, I'll be interviewing Senator Joe Manchin about his views of how he feels that are, the, are the stakes of protecting Europeans uh, and what's involved. So the IRA and the rules around the IRA are what. I'm interested in it right now.
0: We'll be watching for that story. That's Steve Clements. He's editor-at-large at Semaphore. Arthur Delaney is a senior reporter for HuffPost. And Wendy Benjaminson is Bloomberg's deputy managing editor. We'll be back in just a moment with the global edition of the News Roundup. Stay with us. Now let's turn to the global edition of the News Roundup. NATO allies rule out sending in air power to Ukraine. A request for F-16 jets by President Volodymyr Zelensky is turned down. More than a million French citizens take to the streets to protest a bump in the pension age. And strong words from the United Nations two years after the coup in Myanmar. People of Myanmar have been under uh, assault, not by a foreign
2: military invading its borders, but by what is tantamount to them to be a foreign occupying military power that has
0: assaulted their human rights, their democracy, their government. It is a a tragedy of immense proportions, and tomorrow will mark the second anniversary of that coup and what I consider to be the second anniversary of the failure of we as an international community to effectively address this, this crisis. With me this hour, Amy McKinnon, National Security and Intelligence Reporter for Foreign Policy. As always, it's great to have you, Amy. Always glad to be here. Also with us, Indira Lakshmanan, Global Enterprise Editor at The Associated Press. Welcome back, Indira. Thanks, Jen. And Ian Marlow, a diplomatic and national security correspondent at Bloomberg. Ian, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start this hour with a balloon. On Thursday, United States defense officials said they are tracking a suspected Chinese high-altitude surveillance balloon. China's taking unusual steps to smooth things over with the situation. Ian, what is going on?
6: Yeah, this was the balloon that came out of nowhere. Uh, We were all getting ready to accompany uh, Secretary Blinken on uh, this very high-profile trip to China, which was meant to leave tonight. So a lot of us had already packed our suitcases and were getting ready to do COVID tests and the rest of it when uh, we started getting word that the U.S. was having serious doubts about continuing with this trip uh, in the wake of this very high profile and very awkwardly timed uh, discovery of this surveillance balloon kind of floating at a high altitude over the western United States. Um, they just recent, uh, Officials on, on a call this morning said that it just was not uh, conducive or productive to do a trip in the wake of this incident uh, which they called unacceptable, a violation of U.S. sovereignty, and, and also irresponsible. So uh, China's sort of tried to smooth things over, uh, and it's not exactly clear on the Chinese side what happened, whether there was you know an attempt to torpedo the trip, or it was just a miscommunication, or it was just really epically bad timing. Um, but uh, that's where we are at, at, at the moment. Yesterday, the trip was on. Today the trip is off. Uh, they said the secretary uh, will go to China when conditions allow, but there is no sense of what that actually means in terms of what China would need to do or what sort of conditions would need to exist for uh, you know the top US diplomat to, to head to Beijing, which again was was part of a broader, sort of smoothening out of ties between the US and China uh, since Biden uh, President Joe Biden and and Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, met in uh, Indonesia in in November
0: now the US has said they are tracking the balloon but they won't shoot it down why
6: at the moment it's a little bit unclear uh, what sort of intelligence advantage China actually gets from this balloon that they wouldn't also get from low-orbit satellites that they already have uh, in space. The um, US and China, you know, spy on each other constantly. There's, you know, much more high-tech espionage uh, than an old-fashioned balloon, which, you know, I've seen images of surveillance balloons dating back to the Civil War and and, and other things. So um, this is just... Uh, but some people are saying and suggesting that, you know, there's, there's different sensors or cameras on, on this balloon that, that that makes it a little bit more, um, you know, sensitive. But, but at, the, at the moment, <clears throat> there's a lot of confusion, I think. Um, the, the Pentagon basically said, we don't think there's an intelligence threat there. And shooting it down would uh, potentially endanger people on the ground.
0: Speaking of people on the ground, a lot of our listeners have questions about the balloon. Brian asks, what would happen if someone hit the balloon taking pot shots at it? And someone else asks, wouldn't it be
2: useful to capture it intact to see what equipment it carries? Amy, your thoughts? I think the balloon is is too high to take down with pot shots. Um, what we're hearing from U.S. officials is that it's above um, civilian airspace, so it's it's way 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 up there in the sky. This is a very um, sophisticated uh, balloon capable of gathering intelligence. It's not um, it's not the thing that comes to mind that has been in my mind for the past twenty four hours of uh, some some giant floating balloon. Um, uh, I mean, in terms of capturing it. I'm sure the US would would love to see what kind of gear and what kind of equipment the Chinese have on on, on board but I, that would require shooting it down which which as Ian said has been ruled out for the moment um and I think would definitely be seen as an escalatory step by Beijing.
0: Ultimately Amy what does this mean for Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to China as, as Ian said it's been postponed so what happens next? <sighs>
2: I mean, it it kind of remains to be seen what's going to how this is going to unfold in the next few weeks. I think we can certainly expect some very sharp words uh, from Washington and and, and retaliation from Beijing. Um, It will be interesting to see whether or not uh, Blinken is able to reschedule his trip for another time. I mean, part whole part of this trip was to kind of try and uh, put some guardrails on that relationship with China and to at least somewhat stabilize things. But it's very unclear where that goes from here.
0: Let's turn to Haiti for a moment. This week, four people were charged in connection with the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. Three Haitian Americans and one Colombian national were charged for the murder, which took place in 2021. Well, moving to the Middle East, the past 12 months have been the most lethal year for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank in decades. This week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Israel just days after nine Palestinians died during an Israeli military raid on a camp in the city of Jenin. Last Sunday, Israeli police sealed up the home of a Palestinian man who killed seven people outside a synagogue last Friday. That 21-year-old was shot and killed by police. Amy, what stood out to you about this visit by Blinken?
2: so when Blinken arrived in Israel, he declared that he'd arrived at a pivotal moment, um, and certainly I think that captured the way a lot of people feel about events that are converging right now in Israel and the Palestinian territories. And unfortunately, none of these events trending in a terribly positive direction. Um, as you mentioned, you know there has been a surge in violence um, in Israel and the occupied West Bank. In January alone, there were 30 Palestinians killed in, ra- in uh, raids by the Israeli military, while seven people were killed outside of a synagogue in East Jerusalem last Friday. Um, Israel's still you know, relatively new coalition government is settling into place. It's, you know, reported to be Israel's most extreme government ever. Um, They have asserted exclusive Jewish rights to all land in Israel, which, you know, therefore means essentially no land for the Palestinians, no prospect for a two-state solution. And so then in the midst of all of this kind of chaos and turbulence, you have Blinken arriving um, and the Biden administration trying on the one hand to show support for Israel, which is, you know... Still a very strong cause in the Democratic Party the, among Republicans and in the U.S. at large, but of course without completely ignoring these extremely concerning developments for the rights of Palestinians and and the quality for Israel's democracy as well, because there's of course been massive street protests around a proposal which would um, allow the Israeli Parliament to essentially overrule the Supreme Court um, in its decision. So there's been there's been weekly protests there, and so the uh, Blinken arrived at a. A particularly thorny time. And, and he did, you know, he, he spoke out against um, some recent actions uh, in the occupied West Bank, um, you know, describing settlements as hindering the prospects for peace and that there was a shrinking horizon of hope as well for the Palestinians.
0: Well, speaking alongside Israel's Prime Minister, Antony Blinken reminded his host that the U.S. stood firm on the need for a two-state solution. President Biden remains fully committed to that goal. As I said to the Prime Minister, anything that moves us away from that vision is, in our judgment,
4: detrimental to Israel's long-term security and its long-term identity as a Jewish and democratic state.
0: Now, after his visit with Netanyahu, Anthony Blinken traveled to Ramallah, where he met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. In a report published in Axios, Blinken pressured Abbas to, quote, regain control of Janine and Nablus in the occupied West Bank, putting responsibility for the escalating violence in the territory on the Palestinians. Indira, Amy gave us a, a really great rundown of the politics around uh, a two-state solution. This is something we've been talking about for Decades. What hope is there that this approach stands any su- chance of succeeding? Unfortunately,
1: with every year and with more violence, um, the hopes seem to dim. And it's not only that within Israel itself that there is now not majority support for a two-state solution um, within the Israeli public, but experts who were surveyed um, in the last year and you know two years found that a majority of Middle East experts um, believe that a two-state solution is no longer viable and three-quarters have said that if it's not achieved, the result is going to be a one-state reality which is akin to apartheid, by which they mean that if you have a one-state solution, not only is it unfair for the Palestinians um, because they're under you know this Israeli rule, it's minority rule because it's a Palestinian majority, so there are certainly a lot of Jewish-Israeli who worry about a one-state solution saying we'll be a minority in our own country, which has been obviously for a long time, the goal has been a two-state solution with, you know, independence and autonomy for both groups of people. Um, The, you know, the Palestinians have wanted Jerusalem as a shared capital, but, you know, we see that the, the, the conditions are getting worse and worse for that, and Blinken was not
0: able to turn that around during this visit. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper this week, and two areas worth talking about came up in that conversation. Netanyahu told Tapper, quote, We're attacking not only Iran's nuclear program, but also taking action against certain weapons, and Iran invariably exports them. Ian, is it reasonable to conclude that Iran's decision to arm Russia with drones for use in Ukraine has brought more of the international community around to Israel's position on how to deal with Iran?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the U.S. has been very aggressive on condemning uh, Iran's shipment, in particular these these unmanned drones that that Russia is using to attack civilian infrastructure in really devastating uh, ways um, throughout the winter. Um, but I think I think you know Israel has long had a, a, a sort of middle position on on the war in Ukraine with and it's relationship with Russia because there's a complicated, you know, triangle between, uh, you know, Israel and the the airspace over Syria, which Russia controls. And so Israel doesn't want to push uh, Russia too far. But obviously, they are not afraid of pushing Iran. And I think at the moment, there's obviously a lot of concern, I think, in the US about this new um, Israeli government and, and how far they might push on, on issues, whether it's the, the Palestinian issue or, uh, or on Iran. But um, I think there's probably more sympathy for Israel's position now maybe than before, just in the sense that um, I think Iran uh, was seen as obstructive uh, in the Iran deal, which you know people have you know, effectively given up on uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and they've been very explicit about these um this this aid to Russia uh, at this time and and I there's very few allies out there for Russia so um, if Iran w- wasn't thoroughly isolated before it, I, I'd say it's probably even more so now
0: well you mentioned Russia Netanyahu was also asked if he'd be willing to act as a mediator between Russia and Ukraine
1: if I'm asked by both sides and frankly if I'm asked by the United States because I think you know you can't have too many uh, cooks in the kitchen. I'm not pushing myself in. You know, I've been around long enough to know that there has to be a ripe time and the ripe circumstances. If they arise, I'll certainly consider it.
0: Indira, what leverage could BB bring to the table as a mediator between both sides?
1: Look, I mean, it's a little bit bizarre to think of Israel as mediating between um, Russia and Ukraine. It is true that Ukraine had asked Netanyahu's predecessor, Naftali Bennett, to act as a mediator Um, back in March. um, He met with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and also spoke with the Ukrainian president, but he was unable to broker a peace deal. I don't think... I mean, you know, Netanyahu brings a lot of baggage with him. He's like the six-time um, prime minister of Israel who has convictions um, you know behind him or not entirely behind him by the way. Um, and he has a very sort of almost 30 year history now in politics with a lot of uh, overhang. So I'm not necessarily convinced that he would be the best international mediator when he hasn't been able to bring peace to his own country, that he would somehow act as a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. Um you know, I think Russia and Ukraine have bigger problems than one that that Netanyahu can solve. And I, I just you know, without leaving Israel's problems um, you know behind, I think it's really important to remember that you know he's made this deal with a right wing government, the most right wing hardline government in Israeli history. There are five hundred thousand Israeli settlers now living in occupied Palestinian areas and really no sign of moving towards a peaceful solution in Israel. And one thing that I thought was even more interesting that Netanyahu said in his interview with CNN's Jake Tapper It was not the part about Ukraine and Russia, but the part about him saying that he actually is sort of, in a way, putting to the side peace with the Palestinians, and he's more interested in peace with the other Arab states, kind of doing an end run around the Palestinians, um, continuing these so-called Abraham Accords. I mean, remember, the last time the U.S. government was really working hard on promoting a two-state solution was way back in 2014, when I was a State Department correspondent and John Kerry's efforts ended in failure. So, I'm not terribly optimistic about what's happening there with peace on the ground.
0: Well, let's move on now. Jordan's King Abdullah II had lunch with President Biden at the White House yesterday. The meeting marked King Abdullah's second visit to the White House in less than a year and the third since Biden took office. Amy, what prompted this visit and what did they discuss?
2: So, I think the timing is is no accident. I mean, I definitely see this as as a not as, you know, the Biden administration nodding to the very important role that Jordan has played in, in acting as a kind of as a stabilizing force in, in tensions between um, between Israel and Palestine. Um, so I think this is this is pegged to that wider escalating violence in Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank. Jordan plays a very interesting role as a as a custodian of. Um, of this very contested site known as Haram al-Sharif to Muslims, the Temple Mount to, to Jews. In Jerusalem, it's the holiest site in Jerusalem and also the most hotly contested. And, and Jordan acts as a mediator of the site under a 1994 peace treaty. So, you know, that's definitely something that that came up in discussions between the two leaders based on, on readouts that we got, um, both sides, both countries looking for ways to kind of Keep a lid on on spiraling tensions, and and another thing that, of course, was discussed was the war in Ukraine. Jordan is is among the countries that have been very hard hit by, by rising oil and, and rising grain prices as a result of the conflict.
0: Let's move now to a report. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, as a global watchdog group. They announced their findings this week. Their investigation found that the Syrian army was responsible for the chemical weapons attacks on Duma in 2018. Medical aid workers and activists say the attack killed at least 43 Syrian civilians. Ian, what does the OPCW say happened?
6: I mean they said I think what a lot of people already uh suspected or, or you know knew that that it was the Syrian uh forces uh you know president Bashar al-Assad's uh, forces that 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 did this and I, I think um you know many listeners might remember uh this is from the, the the 2018 uh chemical weapons attack but the there was an earlier one in 2013 that was sort of the subject of um people remember the Obama administration's red lines on the use of chemical weapons in Syria, you know, so they'd been used before, they were used in this case there's there's been a lot of um you know back and forth Syria and uh their their backers in in Russia have pushed back and kind of said this is a politicized uh, slate. It was the you know the Syrian white helmets and and other people you know other forces allied with the West that you know sort of orchestrated this attack to make Syria look bad but I think um you know this this report. Uh, comes through and, and, and you know in, in sort of war crimes or crimes against humanity uh, uh, like these um, accountability and international legal sort of um, affirmation is is really important for the historical record and this is kind of what we've what we've seen here
0: Let's turn now to Iran this week a couple received a 10 year jail sentence for dancing.
1: Oh,
0: you That's audio from a video they posted last year of themselves dancing in front of Tehran's Azadi or Freedom Tower. Indira, how did that video land them in prison?
1: Yeah, this is a very sad story. This is a young couple, 21 and 22 years old, engaged to be married, who posted really what I think from the outside we would see as a joyful video of the two of them dancing and smiling um, in front of, as you say, this Azadi Tower, which has been, you know, which means freedom tower, Um, this monument, an important monument in Iran. And, you know, while they did this in the aftermath of the the killing of this young woman um, who was, you know, detained by police and killed last year for not wearing hijab, they did not explicitly link their video to the protests. I'm talking about 22-year-old Masa Amini who died at the hands of police um, last year. And each of these two were influencers. The woman identifies herself as a fashion designer. They had something like 2 million um, followers on their Instagram, but they've now been sentenced to a total of 10 and a half years in prison. And what they were accused of is just incredible. Um, The the charges are that they were basically accused of colluding against national security, promoting prostitution, and propaganda against the establishment. It's really hard to see from our perspective how they're doing any of those things by dancing in a joyful music video. Um, But certainly the regime has connected them to the protests. uh, You know, I said that this was, Without saying it, um, they seem to believe it's an, ic- an ic- explicit or you know implicit um, support of the protests and. You know, this is part of a larger problem here, where more than 750 Iranians have been tried and convicted already for having participated in mass nationwide demonstrations against the regime for the killing of this young woman in police custody. Um, there was there were no defense lawyers present. This was, you know, their their sentences were accelerated by the revolutionary court in Iran. So it's really a very depressing and disheartening verdict.
0: And really briefly, and dear what is the this- state of anti-government sentiment in Iran right now?
1: Well, I mean, it seems to have really coalesced around um, Massa Amini's death. It's really been a catalyst for the widest unrest we've seen in Iran in a very long time. And it has driven up all of this unrest. There's also underlying discontent about poverty, unemployment, inequality, injustice, corruption. It's not just because of women in the hijab, but you've seen women and men protesting against this in favor of Amini. So even though the Iranian regime regime has killed at least four people through death sentences, um, people accused of being involved in these protests, and as I said, prosecuted more than 750 others, Um, we're not seeing a complete dampening down of these protests either. But the Iranians have very little space in which to take up um, political activism um, or any kind of political, you know, really opposition to to the Islamist regime there.
0: Let's turn now to Pakistan, where authorities say the death toll of a mosque bombing on Monday in Peshawar has risen to at least 100. More than 225 people were injured in the attack. That makes it the deadliest bombing in a, de- in a decade to hit Peshawar. That's Pakistan's sixth most populous city. The mosque was in a police compound in a high-security district. Ian, Pakistani authorities say the attack was likely a suicide bombing. What more do we know about the incident?
6: Yeah, I mean at the moment we know that uh the death toll is rising that the that the suicide bomber was apparently uh dressed like a police officer so uh you know to evade uh any suspicions in an area where the mosque was um you know uh, in an area that was that was that was used by police officers. I, I think um you know sort of more broadly I think um I don't know if people really remember but back in 2014 there was another really terrible um attack in Peshawar on a school. And both times uh, that school was an army school. This mosque attack is, is you know, related mostly to to police who were using um, that mosque. Um, w- when terrorists in Pakistan hit the security services like this. Uh, it's a big blow to uh, a country that, uh, you know, is, is dominated by a very powerful military and um, intelligence services. And uh, in the past, the previous army school bombing uh, really changed a lot of minds, I think, in the senior leadership and prompted a national crackdown uh, on terrorist groups. And at the moment, they haven't said who's responsible, but they've said it's uh, likely part of a terror network. And so um, people familiar with Pakistan may, you know, remember that this is a country that, uh, you know, has played a bit of a double game uh, over over the years and has frustrated U.S. officials in terms of, you know, support for terrorists that, that you know, uh, achieve aims that they that they like on their national security grounds, while also trying to tamp down on on terrorist groups that they that they don't like. And uh, U.S. officials have often said this: you you can't have the cake and eat it too. On this, some of it's going to blow back uh, and and hit you. And so it'll be interesting to see from this really tragic attack. Whether the fact that it was aimed at the security services uh, has a similar effect to, to what happened in the past?
0: Well, in neighboring Afghanistan, the Taliban has barred women from working for non-governmental organizations or NGOs. It's a move the UN is calling, "quote, a potential death blow to humanitarian programs in a country facing drought and famine." Indira, what effect could this ban have on the country's ongoing humanitarian crisis?
1: Right. Well, as you said, the UN humanitarian chief said that this could be a potential death blow. I mean, we've already gone through, we're in our second winter now, under the comeback of Taliban rule in Afghanistan. Remember, there was a massive, you know, hunger and starvation in the last winter. And this year, the UN is saying that six million Afghans are facing emergency levels of food insecurity and are just one step away from famine. Um, Eight hundred and seventy-five thousand children are expected to su- suffer severe malnutrition this year, and taking women out of NGOs is, a, you know, a terrible precedent. Not only because in a place like Afghanistan, you need women um, as, you know conduits to other women and children because of the separation of the sexes that the Taliban have made only worse. Now the health minister in Afghanistan made an exception for women in the health field and the education minister granted an exception for those involved in primary, so elementary school education. So the UN has said, look, you're gonna have to either rescind this edict entirely or expand all these exceptions to cover all aspects of humanitarian aid. Not only um, are women accounting currently for 30% of the 55,000 Afghan nationals who work for NGOs, but many of them are the sole breadwinners for their families. So without them, aid can't be delivered to millions of women and children. And the consequences are going to be really severe for a country that's already suffering and lost so much aid because of the Taliban's takeover.
0: Let's move on to Myanmar. Myanmar's ruling military junta announced it's extended the state of emergency it imposed when it seized power two years ago. This move sets back plans for a general election that was expected by August. And it's been two years since the coup. What have the last two years looked like for the people of Myanmar?
6: yeah i think it 's just been an escalating series of um, attacks there 's been no sort of calm or uh, progress i think as a result of the intensifying sanctions that that the u s and other Western countries have put on on myanmar um, the The military government remains uh, in power. The opposition generally remains uh, jailed uh, the armed groups that have been active around the country remain, uh, you know, in conflict with the government, and uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, which uh, is hard pressed to do to do much um, in terms of, you know, military or diplomacy on, on sensitive issues in Southeast Asia, remains uh, relatively uh, confused and, and toothless on on the issue as well, and sort of uh, keeps flip flopping on whether to have uh, Myanmar at regional summits and 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 the rest of it. So I think um, it's been more of the same, unfortunately, for for people in Myanmar over the last two years, and that's been um, increasingly grim.
0: Well, according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, that's an independent watchdog group that tracks killings and arrests in Myanmar. Close to three thousand civilians have been killed since the army takeover, and more than thirteen thousand detained. Earlier, we heard some strong words from the U.N. about the international community's failure with Myanmar. Another U.N. expert has said the violence looks like a civil war in the country. Amy, what prospects for peace are there?
2: it's hard to see at the moment you know what kind what pressure the international community can bring to bear on on the military junta i mean countries are certainly trying um the us and canada and the uk this week uh, and australia as well announced new sanctions on on the military regime in myanmar to try and ratchet up, up up the pressure on them but um you know as we have seen in iran as we have seen with russia you know uh Sanctions are often used as a way to kind of punish, to bring people back to the negotiating table, but, it you know, they do not necessarily always work. And so I think, you know, and also complicating the picture further about putting pressure on me, on the military junta is the fact that they are now getting support from Russia, which is, is, is giving them uh, uh, military aid and, and various kind of weapons to help its, um, you know, to fuel the civil war there. So, um you know, pretty bleak picture, um, I think, looking ahead to to what can actually be done to to bring this conflict to a close.
0: Well, let's turn now to Ukraine. Earlier this week, President Biden told reporters the United States will not be sending F-16 fighter jets to assist in Ukraine's war effort. He later added he would remain in communication with Ukraine about their weapons requests. And Dira, why is the U.S. ruling out this military support?
1: Right. I mean, it's seen as something that would escalate the war even further, but I thought it was really interesting that um, Ukraine's defense minister said saying no was just a starting point. He pointed out that the answer was no with almost every piece of significant weaponry that Ukraine has asked the U.S. and the EU for, and they've ended up getting it, like the tanks. The original answer was no to the tanks um you know so he said all of this assistance the defense minister of ukraine said all types of assistance went through the no stage this is no as of today um, at the same time, we see France um, donating howitzers to Ukraine after a summit between them. Um, you know, this, this high-profile lobbying campaign that Ukraine has made for these F-16s, which are manufactured by the U.S. defense company Lockheed Martin, um, has been going on. It would, it would bring Ukraine into one of only about two dozen countries around the world that have F-16s, but don't forget, um, Kiev has already gotten now. It has commitments for 120 to 140 western made tanks. Um, So they have a lot of weaponry coming in. I do want to add one thing, if I may, Jen, about Myanmar, which is, I think, really significant. Yes, the U.S. and its allies imposed some new sanctions on the the junta's single largest revenue-generating state-owned enterprise on officials with it, which is the Myanmar oil and gas enterprise. But I hope that listeners will take a look at a report The Guardian did this week, which exposed how some of the world's biggest fossil fuel firms, subsidiaries of international gas field contractors, have been making millions and millions of dollars in Myanmar since the coup. And there was certainly, you know, um, lobbying by the oil giant Chevron against sanctions that would disrupt oil operations in the country. So a lot of major multinationals, um, you know, including Halliburton um, and Baker Hughes and others, U.S. firms have continued to make money in Myanmar. Myanmar off of gas drilling. And
0: so that's something the U.S. could certainly crack down on more if it wished. Turning back to Ukraine, Ian, briefly just paint a picture for us about the state of Russia's invasion of that country.
6: Yeah, I think, I mean, we're still in the same situation. I think Ukraine is, is demanding, uh, you know, requesting more... Uh, weapons all the time from its allies. I think there's, uh, you know, there's there's been a push um, in in certain cities in the south and the east, and I think just uh, in general, I think we're seeing, um, you know, I think the winter, uh, the attacks on civilian infrastructure over the winter have been incredibly tough, and you saw the U.S. and other countries, in addition to the security assistance, which I think has made a lot of the headlines. Uh, You know, like tanks and jets also starting to send, you know, less high profile, but, um, you know, much needed uh, civilian sort of energy infrastructure and things like that, generators, things that can help people survive, um, you know, a sort of very cold uh, European winter. Um, And so I think, yeah, uh, we're still uh, sort of in this in in a stalemate, which, again, uh, Russia is not moving towards uh, negotiations, Ukraine. Uh, the administration there, you know, wants to take back, you know, Crimea and get back to the pre-2014 uh, invasion uh, borders. And the U.S. is in a situation where they continue to provide aid, but are constantly sort of bumping up against sort of domestic uh, Republican criticism about the the costs. Um, and I think that's partly uh, underlying some of the hesitation around around not sending F16s and other jets just in terms of training supply chain and 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 the costs that that would add to the presidential drawdowns that we've seen which are already sort of in the two to three billion dollar range each time we see them um so i think we're still at an impasse in in ukraine at the moment and uh, i don't think anyone really is is expecting any any movement other than a sort of slow trickle of of the grim headlines that everyone has been seeing uh you know from russian drone strikes on on civilian infrastructure and, and, you know, embattled cities, um, and particularly in Bakhmut, um, you know, just being pummeled, um, you know, Chechnya style. Uh, So uh, more of the same. Unfortunately, I think.
0: Well, this month will mark one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia launched large-scale artillery attacks on Kiev and other major Ukrainian cities beginning on February 24th of last year. Earlier this week, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson told the BBC about a phone call he had with Russian President Vladimir Putin ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
5: He threatened me at one point and said, you know, uh, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but uh, with a missile it would only take a minute or something like that, you know uh Johnny uh but I think from the the very relaxed tone that he was taking, uh the sort of air of detachment that he seemed to have, he was just playing along uh, with my attempts to get him to
0: negotiate. Amy, what struck you about Johnson's conversation with President Putin?
2: I thought it was another interesting revelation of just how um, how skilled Putin is in his interactions with world leaders in the game of kind of psychological manipulation. Um, I, I mean, from the from what we heard from Boris Johnson, it does not sound like it was a an overt, and absolute direct threat. But coming from a nuclear armed nation, I, I'm sure it was intended as. Um, a fairly sinister reminder of, of Russia's capabilities and the lengths that, that Putin may be willing to go to. Um, very famous, Another very famous incident where Putin has done this is uh, with Angela Merkel, the former German chancellor who was known to be afraid of dogs. And so in one of their meetings together, um, Putin brought in one of his dogs, unleashed, which bounded around the room, jumped up on the German chancellor um, just as, you know, as a way of establishing, you know, I have the upper hand in this relationship. I know where your weaknesses are. Um, and kind of putting her on the spot um, in a situation like that. So just an interesting revelation about kind of... Putin's skill at at psychological manipulation, although it doesn't sound like it had much impact on Boris.
0: Well, let's turn now to France, where protests continue over the French government's plan to raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. An estimated 1.2 million people took to the streets this week, according to the Interior Ministry, challenging President Emmanuel Macron's proposed pension changes. Indira, why is the French president looking to raise the retirement age?
1: Right. So right now, uh, France has a a retirement age of 62, at which you can then begin to draw your government pension, which is one of the lowest retirement ages um, in the West and among OECD countries. And this has been something that France, French people have you know, definitely prided themselves in the social safety net, but specifically the fact that they all pay into this system, and that they can then retire at 62. Remember, Nicolas Sarkozy, a former French president had already raised the rate from 60, the age from 60 to 62 back in 2010. So Macron and his government have said, no, we need to raise it even more to 64 because we are running out of people. Remember, this is caused by, um, you know, the higher life expectancy and the longer people live and the fewer births there are. In the year 2000, there were 2.1 workers paying into this pension system for every one retiree. Now, by 2020, that ratio had fallen to 1.7. And by 2070, it's expected to drop to at least 1.7 point two So the question is, Macron has said this is essential or we're going to bankrupt the pension system. But the reaction from the French has been uh, about at least 1.2 million protesters marching all over the country. Labor groups say it's even more, twice that. We have classrooms that were closed, trains that stopped running, demonstrators marching all over. And the polls show that two thirds of the French people oppose the proposals and want them to come up with another solution uh, like higher taxes to fund these Pensions, um, or you know, other other ways to make this pay-as-you-go structure continue to work with the French retiring at 62, maybe decoupling pensions from inflation or increasing tax on the rich. So at the moment, the government does have some ways to push this through. Um, You know, remember for Macron, this is kind of a legacy signature on his second term. He cannot run again. So he could push it through if he wants to, but he's certain to face a lot of opposition and it could undo the future for his
0: party if he pushes it through. Well, I want to make sure we note some news out of Uganda, where the son of the country's president is making a play to succeed him. General Muhusi Kinarugaba is stepping up his political activities, holding rallies and mobilizing for support online. But in Uganda, military officials are prohibited from engaging in politics. This is also in defiance of his father, President Yoweri Museveni. The current president has been in power for six terms and is expected to run again in 2026. So that's a story we're going to keep an eye on. Well, let's wrap Wrap it up with what you've been following this week or perhaps a story you think hasn't gotten enough attention. I think we might have lost Ian. So, Indira, I'll come to you.
1: Great. Okay. Well, I am uh, looking at the Hong Kong government's plans to give away half a million free airline tickets. This is a story close to my heart because I was a correspondent based in Hong Kong for seven years at the time of the handover to China. Now the country is so different 25 years later, or the territory is so different 25 years later with real crackdown on rights by the Chinese government. Um, Hong Kong is trying to revive its tourism industry and attract visitors back to the city. Um, It'll be really interesting, I think, to see whether people are willing to go back with these free tickets, since it's not the sort of tourist paradise um, and sort of enclave um, of freedom in greater China that it once was.
2: Amy, what about you? Something that my colleagues and I have been tracking this week is um, an effort led by Poland and Estonia to, to try and get Together, a proposal to raise uh, the NATO spending threshold um, ab- above the current level of two percent. Um, it's definitely seen as potentially a stretch. I mean, there's um, several NATO members don't even meet the current two percent. But I think it's, um, you know, this is the first time that a raise has ever been suggested of that level. And I think it's an interesting kind of recognition that. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, certainly allies along the eastern flank of NATO really feel that that more needs to be done in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine to to bolster European security. Well, thanks to Amy
0: McKinnon, national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy, Indira Lakshmanan, global global enterprise editor at the AP, and Ian Marlowe, diplomatic and national security correspondent at Bloomberg. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. Before we go, today we say goodbye to our managing producer, Paige Osborne. Paige has been with 1A pretty much from the beginning of the show. She started as a temp producer and worked her way up through the ranks. She's the person who keeps the 1A train running. She's embarking on a new adventure when we tried to talk her out of taking. But all the same, we wish you the best, Paige, as you spread your wings even wider. We'll miss you and we love you. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. This is 1A.